to The Plant Pod, Grow Your Mind, Feed Your Soul. I'm your host, Carly Bodrug, journalist turned food blogger and the girl behind Plant You. Have you ever turned over the label of your favorite smelling body wash and were surprised at the lengthy ingredient list with a whole bunch of chemical names you couldn't pronounce? Or maybe you've experienced ongoing symptoms like fatigue, insomnia, low mood with no source or explanation from your doctor. Today we're talking about the hidden toxins in our homes and how these can directly impact our everyday health. For example, when I was researching this topic, this statistic really shocked me. I came across a study from the Environmental Working Group that found American minority newborns' umbilical cord blood to contain more than 200 chemicals upon birth. This was back in 2009. For this episode, I could not be more excited to introduce you to my friend, Dr. Vivian Chen. Dr. Chen is a UK-trained medical doctor with 15 years of clinical experience. She is board certified in the UK in both internal medicine and family practice. Her world turned upside down when her daughter was hospitalized soon after being born with symptoms no doctor could figure out. Through doing her own research, she was able to help her daughter recover. She also realized that many years of chronic fatigue, acne, and brain fog she had was due to environmental toxicity. This opened up the world of root causes she had never considered before as a conventional medical doctor. Today, she lives in San Francisco with her family and coaches clients back to health by identifying root causes and implementing lifestyle solutions. She is also on a mission to help people reduce their toxic load because she believes environmental toxins to be one important root cause of many chronic health conditions. Before we get started, if you enjoy this episode while listening, take a screenshot and share it in your Instagram stories, tagging me at Plant You and Dr. Vivian Chen at Plateful Health so that we can share the love. And of course, since this is a newer podcast, your five-star reviews literally mean the world to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Without further ado, welcome Dr. Chen to the Plant Pod. I'm so excited to be here, Carly. I'm a big fan of yours, so um, I'm excited to chat. Likewise. And to start, I'd love to hear about how you started your journey in low toxic living and your, your story. Like with many conventionally trained MDs, the way into a more kind of integrative, holistic approach to health is usually through personal experience. So that's the same with me. So um, I had suffered many years with chronic symptoms like fatigue, brain fog, acne, anxiety, insomnia. And my doctors always told me there was nothing wrong with me because my labs were perfect. Um, and they told me I was just stressed or, you know, I was busy. Um, and for a while, I actually believed that that was, <laughs> quote, normal and just accepted that, you know, those symptoms were part of life. And everything changed uh, when I had my daughter. And, and I think you probably know my story, but for your listeners who are not familiar with my story, um, when my daughter was eight weeks old, she had to be hospitalized and fed through an NG tube. So that's a tube that goes through your nose into your stomach. Um, and the reason why is because she began to just not feed very well. Um, from when about when she was about four weeks old, um, she I was breastfeeding her at the time. So she would come onto my breast latch on, feed for a little while, and then just come off, arch her back and cry. Um, so her pediatricians thought she had reflux. 
she was put on medication after medication, none of it worked. And when she was eight weeks old, things got so bad that she just stopped feeding completely. Um, and she became so dehydrated that she had to be tube fed just to be kept alive. Um, at that point, nobody knew what was actually wrong with her, including myself. So in, imagine the kind of the guilt I felt, right? The guilt of failing her as a mom and also failing her as a doctor as well. Like I, through all those years of training, I really should know what's wrong with her and be able to help her. And there, there was, I couldn't even help my own daughter. So that really opened up the world of, you know, questions like did I really learn what I needed to learn at medical school did I learn everything I needed to know um, what's missing now I'm not saying that there was no merit to my medical training I love how robust conventional medical training is there's a lot of sciences that you know we're taught to you know think about everything in a logical way and look at the evidence behind treatments which is all great um but there was the side of you know nutrition which we got very little training in and environmental um, environmental toxins was non-existent the training so i began to look into the literature and realized that she actually had a uh, an allergy cow's milk protein allergy so through my breast milk, she was getting cow's milk proteins and reacting to it and it was inflaming her gullet and that's why she, she didn't feed. So we switched out her milk, she got better. And then I began to realize that environmental toxins may be at the root of her allergies. It's not the only cause, of course, there's so many different factors involved in any disease, but it's one of the under, underlying root causes for her because I was toxic. I passed through the toxins through to her when I was pregnant with her. So I started working on myself. So cut a long story short, it was through, it was my daughter who kind of really opened my eyes to things that I didn't learn about at medical school. And when she got better, I worked on myself. I got myself better. I started to work with my clients and patients. I got them better. And then I realized so many more people really need to know this, right? Because it's just not taught at medical school. If you go to a conventional medical doctor, most of them will just roll their eyes at you and tell you there's nothing you need to do because we have detox organs. So I, yeah, it's a topic I'm very, very passionate about because I feel like there's, there needs to be more awareness so what are some of the things that you started with to address some of these symptoms that you were experiencing, like the tiredness and the brain fog? Yeah, that's a great question. So it was a very slow stepwise process um, because we're not trained. We're not trained in this area, right? So for everything, I had to kind of look at the literature and learn. Um, there's a lot of myths around detox and toxins right you know there's a lot of information that's not being validated um so to kind of cut out the wheat from the chaff it that, that took me a lot of a lot of time but essentially i realized that i had i had mercury toxicity and it was through um the many amalgams i had um plus i was exposed to lots of um environmental toxins through personal care products, household cleaning products. I mean, 
when I first realized how much we were exposed to and how little we were protected, I was just astounded and really quite angry and frustrated that we are not better protected from these potential harmful chemicals. Now, not every chemical is harmful. The problem is that most of them that are being used have no human safety data, right? So these chemicals were accumulating in my body. So it was a slow press process of looking at, well, how do our bodies get rid of these things that have accumulated in, my, in, in me? Um, mercury is a very specialized area. So I, I recommend everybody who is experiencing mercury toxicity to work with a practitioner. But, you know, I used things like, you know, foods. Food is where we, you know, we start, right? So actually back up a little bit to, to reduce your toxic load. The first step is always to avoid exposure, right? So that's the first thing I did. I looked around my home um, to look at areas where I'm potentially being exposed, trying to take steps to reduce exposures that way. And again, that's a stepwise process. I didn't do it overnight. And if you're on this journey or thinking about starting this journey, please don't feel like you have to you know, do everything overnight. It's overwhelming. So one step at a time, I prioritized you know, cleaning, the, uh, filtering my water, cleaning out the air in my house, switching out cleaning products and then personal care products, and then looking at the food. The food can be a source of environmental toxins and the food can be a great way to help us detox. So that was a really big area that I focused on. And we can go into more detail talking about foods if you want. But essentially, it was kind of minimizing exposure, trying to optimize the detox um, organs in my body, which then eventually, slowly over time, I was able to get rid of the toxic uh, toxin burden. And slowly, I, I noticed an improvement in my symptoms. You and I both see working in the plant-based space that the word detox is often used by diet companies as like a quick weight loss fix. And it's almost become like, I avoid saying it because it has such a negative connotation at times. Do you find it has been misrepresented within the health community? It's really hard to you know, talk about detox now without people coming with their own uh, kind of judgments and preconceptions, right? Um, the, the fact, though, is that we are constantly detoxing. It shouldn't be a dirty word. It's, it should be something people are thinking about, but not in the way that they're conditioned to think about because of marketing and, you know, supplement companies. So, you know, when a lot of people hear the word detox, they immediately think of powders and shakes and, uh, you know, don't eat anything, <laughs> only drink juice for a week and, and things like that and expensive protocols. And it really, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. I, I almost feel like we're conditioned to feel like we need help to get healthy. And, you know, a lot has to be said about how we like you know, we have so much power in our own bodies to heal, right? We just have to remove the obstacles and provide the fuel and our body can heal by itself. We don't necessarily need pills. We don't necessarily need supplements to get to that place. Like one of the commonest things I get asked on Instagram is, what supplement should I take? It's like, have you looked at your food? Like, what are you eating? Like, could we optimize that? And then we don't need so many supplements. And Working with clients, 
very often they come to me on 20 to 30 different supplements and it's kind of like you know they see something online they think oh yeah I need this because it said that um, it helped with fatigue or it helped with brain function so I'm going to add all these things to see if you know it can help me when our body can actually do a great job if we just provided the fuel. So what you're saying from a detox perspective, it's supporting our body's natural detox functions and organs to work through these now environmental toxins that are kind of pervasive in our everyday life. Right, exactly. Yes, exactly. So, so we have been made perfectly to deal with environmental toxins. We have the liver, we have kidneys. We have the lymph system, we have lungs um, and sweat to get rid of the exposures we come across. The only problem is that we have been inundated, right? All those organs have now been inundated with the sheer volume of harmful chemicals that have been released into our environment. And some of them are not excreted efficiently. So they start accumulating in our bodies and we pass them over through generations. So a study by the environmental working group showed that babies are born with a toxic load. They found an average of 230 chemicals in the umbilical cord blood of babies born at birth, right? So these are babies who haven't even been exposed to external environment except what the mom was exposed to. And they're being passed, you know, these chemicals are being passed through uh, the placenta. So, you know, it's really sad when I mentioned this, because I feel like that's not how we were meant to, you know, operate. We're not meant to, we're not designed to counter so many different chemicals and have to detoxify them. You know, 200 years ago, we'd be absolutely fine. Nobody would be talking about detox, right? Because we don't need to detox. Like our organs would have been sufficient enough unless we're talking about like, you know, you're talking about eating a poisonous berry or poisonous mushroom that of course then our detox organs could be overwhelmed. But on a day-to-day basis, nobody would be needing to think about detox, but because of um, the industrial revolution and, you know, this thing called, better living through chemistry. And I'm not going to lie, like we, our lives have definitely become more convenient because of this movement, but at a cost right, to our environment and to our own health. So we're at a point now where we actually do need to be cognizant of what's lurking in order to protect that toxic load in our bodies. So if someone's listening from their home right now and they're looking around, what are some of those biggest offenders that most people have in their home but don't realize could be toxic? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And um, so, so here's the thing. This this is how I would I, I like people to think about environmental toxins. Think about your total body toxic load as a bathtub. Right. So the toxins coming that we're encountering is the water coming through the faucet. And usually the water is coming out in little drip drops. Right. They're not it's not you're not getting floods of water coming in unless there's a chemical spillage or, you know, there's been an accident. And then the detox organs is the drain. Right. So as long as what's coming in is going out, you're, you're fine. OK, so please don't panic. 
right? Because I know if I'm going to, if I launch into products right away, people are like, oh my goodness, I'm going to switch this podcast off. I can't take it. So I'm going to mention a lot of things, but remember the exposures on a daily basis is very small. And, you know, it's the cumulative effect from different things over time, especially if the drain is blocked, that then can lead to the bathtub overfilling. And it's when it, the bathtub overfills that you start to get symptoms and health challenges. So don't panic. And even if you can just, you know, reduce the amount of drops coming out of that faucet by, uh, you know, two or three drops per minute, that makes a big difference over time. So that's the first thing to remember. Now, in terms of products in our homes, I would say if you're a woman, um, personal care products, it's got to be number one, right? Uh, the environmental working group, I think, found that a, an average woman is exposed to 168 different chemicals per day just through personal care products. And we're almost conditioned to believe that we need to smell a certain way and we need to use all these products um, to look a certain way by marketing, I feel, right? Like, do we really need all these products? I, I don't know, right? We Definitely need not. Right? Um, so I think the first step is to think about what products you actually really need and what you don't need. But, you know, personal care products can hide endocrine disruptors. And, you know, things like paraben has been linked to breast cancer, for example. Phthalate is a, is a big, big group of chemicals that can cause endocrine disruption. And that can be linked to things like insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, fertility issues, cancers, immune problems, um, neurodevelopmental problems in children. And if you are planning to have children soon, or you, if you're actually pregnant, I think personal care products is, is important, especially if it's a product you're applying over a big, large area of your body, because our, you know, our skin can absorb some, some of these chemicals. Um, so personal care products is um, one area to look at. Now, it can be really overwhelming to like, learn all these names right, of what to avoid. So an easy way to overcome that is to look up the Environmental Working Group Skin Deep database. And they have vetted products so that you can choose, like it's on the scale of one to 10, um, or sometimes it's A to F. Like you wanna go for products as low on the number scale and as high, you know, like in the A's and B's for, for the ratings. Um, there's another app called Think Dirty. So you can actually download it on your phone. And if you're in a store, um, you can scan a barcode and it will tell you um, if there's any harmful chemicals in the product. So that's one area. And then the other one is cleaning products. Um, so cleaning products can hide, again, a lot of endocrine disruptors. Many of the agents used for cleaning, things like chloride, bleach, they're direct um, irritants to our airways and it can cause inflammation in the airways. And you know we're coming to allergy season soon. So, well, even now it's a lot of people are experiencing allergy symptoms. Um, so you want to be minimizing the inflammation that is in your airways if you have any of these symptoms. Well, I'm looking at my table because I can smell this right now. What about candles? Because I've heard oh, yes. bad yes. things, but we look at them as like these meditative, organic things. But I think absolutely they're not. 
Right. So it depends on the ingredient, right? So candles, air fresheners um, are a big source of indoor air pollution because again, they are they can contain phthalates. So phthalate is like the 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 chemical that sticks scent to um, to to a, comp, uh, a product. So right. if you wash your clothes and four days later you can still smell that. I don't know, whatever, meadows <laughs> scent, that's phthalate doing its job. And so a lot of air fresheners have phthalates in them to let the scent linger more. And if you use essential oils, for example, you'll know that the smell disappears very quickly. But if you use an air freshener, the smell can linger for a long time. And the same goes for candles. So they use, uh, you know, fragrance. Fragrance is this umbrella term that can include so many different, I think up to 300 different uh, chemicals, including phthalate. So they don't need to list phthalate on the ingredient list. They'll just hide it under fragrance. So if I see fragrance on the ingredient list, I either avoid the product if I'm not a fan of it anyway, or I contact the company and ask them what they use. And if a company is transparent, they'll tell you, or they'll tell you it's proprietary. And if they tell you it's proprietary, it probably means they're hiding something. I know I'm making accusations without proof, but you know, um, I don't see why they can't disclose the ingredients to you. Anyway, uh, apart from endocrine disruptors and phthalates, um, candles can also be made from paraffin wax. And when that's burnt, it can emit um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are carcinogens, benzene, which is another carcinogen, and toluene. So they're, they're not the best, but they're, they're better products out there, right? That's the good news. So this is what I try to do. Like, I'm a big fan of candles. I love candles for the very reasons that you mentioned. Um, so I try to look for soy or coconut wax, which um, when combusted doesn't emit so much of the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And I try to avoid anything that's scented with fragrance or, you know, artificially scented products. Um, and I try to look for essential oils in these products. How often are you airing out your house? Every day. And I know, <laughs> I know Jesse has <laughs> your house and I'm always clapping like, yeah, go. Um, so it's really, it's really the easiest, simplest way to, in, to clean your indoor air. And, um, you know, if you have the funds, then yes, please invest in an air purifier. But, you know, if there's no wildfire going on or if you don't live in the city, then usually outdoor air is cleaner than indoor air. So if you just open the windows for 10, 15 minutes, I know it's really, really cold. Um, maybe open it uh, and go to another room and then just like do different sections of your house. Um, but yeah, it's a, that's a really important step. If somebody's listening and a bell is ringing in their head, they have some of these symptoms like ongoing fatigue. They've been to a doctor and there's no evidence that something else is going on. Where is it that they can start if they're thinking that a detox might be right for them. Right. So of course, the first thing is to exclude any physical medical conditions, right? So that's why it's important to seek advice from your medical doctor. But if you've gone there and they're saying there's nothing wrong with you, then the first step would be like looking in your house to try and reduce 
exposures, right? So looking at your drinking water. Um, so if you live in the US, you can look up the quality of your water on the EWG tap water database. Um, and I think in most countries, you can actually, you know, contact the water utility company and get a water report just to see what contaminants there are in the drinking water and think about investing in a, a water filter because we know that there's in excess of 300 different chemicals that could be found in our drinking water, tap water I'm talking about. And, um, you know, in the US at least, only about 91 are regulated for. So there's a lot that slips through the net, things like pharmaceutical prescription medications, um, PFAS, you know, the group of nonstick chemicals that's uh, it's been in the news a lot. Um, so yeah, think about filtering your water and think about food, right? We eat three times a day. We eat around three pounds of food every day. Um, that's a lot of potential exposure to things that could be making you tired and exposed to different environmental toxins. And I feel like in terms of food, the biggest source of exposure is probably through, you know, your synthetic artificial ingredients um, and also animal-based products because um, animals bioaccumulate these environmental toxins in the fatty tissue because a lot of these chemicals, they're called lipophilic particles because they like they have an affinity to fat so they tend to get stored in the fat tissues if they're not eliminated immediately so imagine an animal who's feeding on you know things that contain environmental toxins over its lifetime it's accumulated a lot of these um, chemicals into the fatty tissue and we're, con we're eating this when we're um, eating food um, another big group of chemicals that could be found in food is pesticides. Um, and I know it's not possible to eat completely organic, um, but the high, the high kind of um, pesticide residue foods are listed by the EWG. So on the dirty dozen list. So if you, um, every year they release their dirty dozen list. So have a look at that and maybe just prioritize getting those organic to reduce your exposure. So looking around your home, looking on your plate, looking at your water to try and reduce exposure is number one, because uh, let's say if you left the tap water, uh, the, the faucet on in the bathroom, the bathroom's flooded in terms of toxic overload. The first thing you need to do is switch off that faucet before you mop up, right? So by reducing exposures, we're, we're switching off that faucet. So less is coming in and we have more time to mop and catch up mopping phase where we may need to help our bodies eliminate some of this. So some people um, are born with great genes. So even our detoxification um, processes are governed by our genetics. And there are so many different genes that are involved. And some people are lucky in that they've inherited genes that allow them to detoxify very efficiently. So those are the people who say, oh, I smoked every day until I'm like 90 and I'm still alive. Um, whereas others like me, I, I just smell someone's perfume, I get a migraine. So we're all different in our abilities to um, eliminate toxins. But some people just, we, you know, we need a little help 
to eliminate these toxins. So I would say the first step is to work on the gut health. Right. A lot of people, when they think about detox, um, they jump immediately into all these supplements that support the liver, which is great. Like liver for sure is like our main detox organ, but they forget that the gut is linked to the liver. And if the gut is not optimized, that can be an area where um, the faucet is not switched off because the gut can leak through a lot of toxins into our bloodstream. And a healthy gut microbiome can actually break down toxins in our gut and prevent it being absorbed. So optimizing gut health is probably the first step. Um, and then I work through the different systems and go to the liver and then the kidneys, the lymphatic system. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know whether I gave you very tangible steps there. Um, oh, for sure you did. I'm, I'm curious, what are kind of like the telltale symptoms that you are maybe experiencing toxic overload? Is there like one or two mm. that are like very indicative of that being a problem with your body? Yeah, that's a great question because there, there is no like symptom that's specific to toxicity. So all these symptoms can overlap with another medical condition. So right. it can be hard to kind of just go by symptoms say, oh, you definitely have toxic overload. Um, but the commonest symptoms, if we think about how these toxins can affect our health, right, they can affect our mitochondria and our mitochondria produces energy. So then if your mitochondria is not working because of toxins, you experience fatigue, you can experience brain fog, hormone issues, and the hormone issue can cause also just by the fact that a lot of these toxins are endocrine disruptors, so they affect our hormones. And um, so there you would have symptoms like irregular cycle, heavy periods, breast tenderness, PMS, fertility issues, uh, endometriosis, PCOS, polycystic cystic, cystic syndrome. Um, and I feel like the main symptoms that I work with are in those categories, so like fatigue, brain fog, um, gut issues, and, um, and fertility and endocrine issues, so hormone issues. Do you think these symptoms are often ignored in modern medicine? Yes, unfortunately it is. And it's not the fault of the doctor, right? They, they all wanna help people. But I can tell you as a physician who worked for 15 years, I, I was very frustrated when I had patient in front of me who I didn't know what was wrong with them, right? So it's kind of like almost a challenge to their ability as a doctor to help. And, mo uh, uh, and a lot of the time it's kind of like, well, wh why can't, why don't I know what's going on? So let's just tell them that it's normal, right? <laughs> or it's in your head, like you're thinking, like you're making this up or like horrible things like that, right? I'm not saying every doctor does that, but I'm saying that I was even guilty of doing that because I didn't want to feel like I was not helping my patients, right? So if I didn't know what was wrong with them, well, they must be normal. <laughs> so um, yeah, sadly, especially with things like fatigue and brain fog, right? Because it's not something we can show on labs. And it wasn't until I experienced it myself and I was told that was normal. That I was like, hey, this is really not normal. And I don't like being told this, right? Being on the other side, that made me feel like, no, I, we really need to listen to our patients more because their symptoms 
are so important. It's just not just the labs that count. And people with suffering with hormonal issues, um, it's difficult to get down to that root cause sometimes. And so a lot of people are being told, oh, it's normal. You know, after you take the pill, you come off and you have no periods. Oh, it's normal. It's just side effect of the pill and things like that. So yeah, I, I feel like we need to definitely listen to our patients better. You've worked in both the UK and now you're in the US. Is there a differentiation between countries in areas even um, that different kind of chemicals are allowed in the products? Mm. Yes, yes, a big difference. And um, there's a lot more protection if you're in the EU. So for Mm. example, um, the EU has banned something like 1300 different chemicals being used in their personal care products. And I'll tell you, when I first moved to the US, I was letting my kids eat like the snacks that they recognize like we use, I used to let them eat in the UK. And then I flip over and read ingredients. I'm shocked that's how, how many extra ingredients there are. And the most, and some of these are harmful ones like BHT, BHA. Like I never saw those on packages, right? These are endocrine disruptors again and carcinogens. I just can't believe they're allowed in the US. And so you know, compared to the EU, which has banned 1,300 different chemicals for use, the US, I think, has now banned around 13, right? So like oh, a, wow. a absolute tiny amount. And it's almost like in the US, you need to show absolute evidence that something causes harm before it's banned, when really we should work, you know, we're talking about human safety. We should work on the precautionary principle. Like if something has been shown that it could potentially cause harm. I feel like it shouldn't be used, right? Until there's evidence that it's safe, right? It should be the other way around. Like we shouldn't have to work so hard to prove something is harmful before it's taken out of circulation. And I feel like that's why we're at this point where we need to advocate for ourselves as consumers now, because the regulations are not there to protect us. Um, the, you know, the regulations are made in conjunction with lobbyists and with the industry and it's in their favor to you know help them make more money but you know we as consumers are so powerful because when we buy products with better ingredients it's telling those companies hey we're not going to we're not going to let you get away with this right we're not going to spend money with you anymore and so now we're seeing like all these big brands coming out with non toxic phthalate-free, paraben-free alternative products that are better for us. So, you know, there is a way around this. I want to circle back to food for a second, mostly because it's my favorite topic. But are there certain foods that people should be including in their diet that help support that body's natural detoxification process? I think I've heard cruciferous vegetables before. Right. Yeah. So there are foods that have been shown to support things like liver detoxification, like cruciferous, um, your alliums like garlic onions. Um, but I, I think, you know, your diet is naturally a detox diet anyway, right? Everybody listening to this, subscribe to Carly's <laughs> meal plan because it's a naturally like you eat so healthy. There's like very little oil in your food. Um, And it's just full of plants, right? It's whole foods. I think that's where people need to start. It's like 
don't overcomplicate things. Like we don't need to specifically go in and start reading up on like all these specific foods. Um, if you're if you're busy and you want, just want to get started, focus on whole foods. Focus on mainly plants. And the reason is because of fiber, right? Number one, fiber. Fiber in itself is a uh, toxin binder. So in the gut, it can help bind onto toxins and prevent them from being removed. So you're effectively switching off that faucet right there with your with fiber. And then it provides phytonutrients, which then can counter, counteract some of the harmful effects of these chemicals. And then they contain um, compounds that can help boost liver detoxification, right? So the uh, cruciferous, the alliums, and then, you know, lemons. So citrus is great for liver, supporting the liver. And herbs are amazing for helping um, detoxification as well. So milk thistle and dandelion root, burdock root, these can be made into a tea. Obviously, check with your doctor if you're pregnant. Um, some of these are contraindicated. But, you know, even culinary herbs like rosemary, rosemary can help us detoxify. Um, so, yeah, like just incorporate plenty of variety of different plants. I think it's, it's the first step. Do you have a protocol for washing your vegetables? I feel like I've seen you before with mm. vinegar. Yeah, so I looked into this because I always want to present like a, a evidence-based way, not just like, oh, I felt like dropping some vinegar in my produce. Um, so I found some studies to suggest that if you use salt or vinegar, so vinegar surprisingly only works really well when it's neat, like undiluted. So if you, if you use vinegar, that can get expensive and it can like seep into the food and make produce taste sour. So I tend to use a salt solution, which is cheaper. So it's like a 10% uh, salt solution, one part salt, 10 parts water, and you dilute it, mix it all up. And then I let my produce um, sit in there for about 15 minutes. And then you want to rinse it because you don't want all that salt going into your food. And then I dry it. So um, I do that with produce that's not organic. Um, and I do still buy non-organic produce. And then you know, things like that has thick peels. I don't even like banana, avocado. I, I don't really bother to wash them with any special methods. I just peel it. Now in my house, we're a huge lovers of rice. And if we could, I'd like I'd eat rice every night. But I've heard that rice can actually carry a toxic load. And the other day I was like rinsing my rice before I made it and people were going nuts in my Instagram stories. And I heard that this can help decrease some of that. Can you talk a little bit about the rice situation? Yes, I think it's been in the, in the press a lot, right? Because of heavy metals, particularly arsenic. So the way rice grows it actually has an affinity to take up arsenic from the soil. And so whether it's organic or non-organic rice, it can still contain arsenic just because the soil has been contaminated with arsenic. And arsenic is actually naturally occurring in our soil. So, you know, a lot of people freak out about heavy metals. Well, heavy metals naturally occur in the earth's crust. So it's naturally in our soil. It's just that it's not supposed to be present at that amount, right? And arsenic mainly got into our water through 
um, artificial fertilizers. Chicken feed, for example, contained arsenic to fatten them up. And arsenic, you know, for that reason, is often considered uh, an obesogen, um, and it's been linked to things like insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and certain cancers. So after I've just scared you with all that information, let's talk about the reality. I think that the reality is that rice can contain some arsenic, but we have to we have to be balanced in our approach to this, right? I, I haven't cut out rice completely. And then I, I know you just said, you know, you enjoy rice. I think it's important to include foods that you still enjoy, you, you enjoy eating, because there's a pleasure element to food that's so important. And if we're always constantly worried about toxin exposure through our food, that can actually reduce our pleasure of, you know, the whole experience of eating and add a, an invisible form of, toxin, which is stress, right? So I think approach it in a, in a practical, pragmatic way. So where you can, you know, go for another grain, like, you know, if you can use quinoa instead, some nights do that. But there are ways you can reduce um, the arsenic content in your rice too, right? So, so rinsing um, is one way and soaking and then cooking it in a lot of water is another way. So studies have found that if you soak and then cook it with a I think it's a 10 to 1 ratio so one part of rice and 10 parts water that's a lot of water right you need a big pot um, but if you cook it that way you can reduce your uh, the arsenic by something like 60 70 percent so that's quite significant so that's how I cook my rice and there's a lot of people uh, saying oh there's more arsenic in white uh, sorry, in brown rice. And it's true because arsenic sits in the, the bran. So white rice doesn't have the bran. But the interesting thing is a study that actually looked at how much arsenic is excreted in the urine of people who eat brown and white rice found that people who ate white rice had just as much arsenic in their urine compared to people who ate brown rice. So again, going back to like fiber, I think it's down to the fiber is the fact that, you know, that fiber is holding on to the arsenic. And so the arsenic is not being absorbed, right? So I still eat brown rice. I don't, I haven't switched to white rice because of the arsenic content. I think where we do need to be a little bit more cognizant is where it's hiding in processed food. So a lot of, uh, you know, things like pasta and um, crackers, Brown, brown or white rice syrup, those can actually contain a lot of arsenic and we're not really thinking about that. Like a lot of people say, oh, I'm just not eating rice anymore, but they're eating brown rice syrup, like, you know, and crackers and things that could still contain more. And, and I would argue that, you know, with things like that, that's processed is a lot easier for the body to absorb that arsenic than something that's whole foods that has a fiber that delays absorption. And then there's like things you can do to in your diet to counteract some of the effect, right? So for example, turmeric has been found to counteract some of the harmful effects of arsenic. So adding turmeric to your cooking that you're eating with rice. So, you know, maybe that's why uh, we don't see because a lot of people ask me, well, if arsenic's so bad, if you look at the Asian countries like India, they eat so much rice, we're not seeing like, you know, that much disease rate over there. And, you know, we don't see a massive spike in cancer rate. And that's true. And maybe it's like what 
else are they eating with the rice, right? They eat a lot of curry, which has turmeric. Maybe that's why. So yeah, I, I'm not overly, like I try to do what I can when I know information like this, but I don't overly obsess because I know that just around the corner, the next thing we'll know like, oh, this other food has something else in it that you know we need to avoid. So yeah, just try it and take a, a, a relaxed, pragmatic approach to what you can do that's easy for you. And then trust that your body has the detox capability to get rid of some of the exposures too. I think your balanced message is really great because it is easy to get overwhelmed like anything. I know we have just scratched the surface here and you have this brilliant course that can actually take people through the detoxification process. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Oh, thank you so much. Yes. So I decided to put a course together because there's just so many myths and unvalidated information out there on detox, like going back to the original part of the beginning of our conversation, I wanted to bust those myths. So I called my course Detox Right, like the right way, the science-based way to detox. And so the course, uh, the first part of the course is aimed um, to help people reduce toxic exposure. So um, there's modules on detox your home, for example, and how to reduce exposures through your food, your water, your everyday products. And then um, we go into actual detox, like how to support the organs in your body to get rid of these toxins already accumulated in the body. Um, And also to, to deal with ongoing everyday exposure. So I go into detail about how the liver works, because I feel like, you know, a lot of people don't talk about the mechanisms about you know, in how things work, because they assume that consumers don't understand, you know, they don't, they're not going to get it, or they're not going to want to know, but I actually find the opposite, right? With so many products on the market that supposedly support your liver, unless you understood how your body works, just not going to know what you need. So I actually go into like phase one, phase two, phase three parts of liver detoxification, And my um, students who took it the first time around, they actually loved knowing this information because now they're equipped with knowledge when they go to the health store and see all these products, they know what each one does and how they actually can support themselves. And, And there's a big, big section on gut health because as I said, that's actually the first place I work on when I embark on any detox protocols with my clients. And part of the reason why I decided to put the course together is because I found that when I was working with clients, um, there were lots of common principles that would go with to go through with them that would apply to everyone. So why not make the information available more widely, right? So that people can actually start to work on um, the health by themselves. So there's a big section on gut health, and I also talk about kidneys, um, the lymph sweating I talk about sauna I talk about different therapies um, and food like a big focus on food like how I I have a detailed section on the evidence but also like a handout like a cheat sheet on if you want to support your detox these are the foods that you should try and focus on type thing so and then there's a section a bonus section on pregnancy children and also labs where can people find that course if they're wanting to take it? 
Um, so I, I have the uh, course linked on my website and uh, on my Instagram link in bio. I can also send you the link if, um, so you can add it here and maybe pe people can click on it for convenience. For anyone interested in the course, I will include a link to that in the show notes as well. It just sounds fantastic. And before we wrap this up, I do want to ask about saunas because I know you and I are both huge fans of saunas. How can that play a role in this detox kind of puzzle here? Yeah, so I love sauna. There's actually a lot of evidence um, showing that we sweat out toxins through our sweat. So things like BPA. Um, heavy metals have been found in sweat. Um, and also there's quite a bit of evidence linking sauna to cardiovascular and um, respiratory health. So I'm a big fan of sauna. Um, so I think the first thing to note is that not everybody can use the sauna. So if you have certain medical conditions, you need to check with your doctor. And also if you're pregnant um, or even breastfeeding even, because what happens is that sauna can actually mobilize toxins from the fat storage, right? So if you're breastfeeding, this means that the toxins previously stored in the fat can now go into your bloodstream and from the bloodstream go into breast milk and be passed on to the baby. So for, for pregnancy and um, breastfeeding women, I also say, try not to use sauna. Um, so make sure you don't have contraindications as a first step. Now, I work with a lot of very sick clients and they can be very heat sensitive. Um, they start to get dizzy, feel nauseous if they go in heat so much. So if you're one of those people, you really need to start slow. Um, so, you know, just go in low temperature, five minutes, see how you feel. If you, as soon as you feel don't, you don't feel well, come out. If you feel good in a sauna, like personally, I go in a sauna for 20, 25 minutes uh, when I go in and I, you know, stay in until I work up a really good sweat. And the important thing to note with sauna is that it can make you lose minerals, right? And because our food, our soil is already so depleted in minerals, some of us are mineral deficient. And, and you go in the sauna, if you don't replenish that, you can actually become even more mineral deficient. So um, make sure you hydrate well with some electrolytes. So I usually do that before I go in the sauna, but you can also do it after. And, you know, a lot of naturopathic doctors tell the patients to weigh themselves and drink the amount of water that, you know, the, the scale has gone down by to make sure they're properly hydrated. I don't do that. I just basically, you know, drink and then make sure I don't feel, you know, don't feel thirsty anymore. But if you're like a fanatic, that's what you would do. Um, and I, what I like to do is um, after the sauna, I go into cold. So I'll have a, a freezing cold shower straight after. And again, <laughs> and there's some evidence that that actually causes the white blood cells from the blood vessels to come out into your, into your bloodstream. Um, and it could give you an immune boost that, you know, we need a lot more data around that, but that's why I like it. Um, and cold therapy is actually really good for you, but I don't like cold showers without an increased core temperature. So I like to get my core temperature up with the sauna and then I go into cold shower. But again, if you have heart conditions, like, you know, irregular heartbeat and things like that, definitely be careful because 
that can actually trigger uh, even more heart, uh, heart problems. So um, yeah, so, so that's sauna in a nutshell. And um, the traditional sauna, Finnish saunas um, use heat. Uh, so it's kind of what's called, I think it's called induction. So I'm not, I'm not a super physics expert, but it, you know, it uses this, it uses heat to ambient heat to heat up your body. So the inside of that sauna is usually quite hot. I don't know which one do you, you have? Is it a finished sauna or infrared? We have an infrared. My parents have a finished one though. So I have experienced both in the kind of difference. Theirs gets like super hot and right, ours right. isn't as hot, but I sweat more in the infrared. Yes. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. very interesting because the infrared actually uses light frequency to heat up it's kind of causes agitation of the molecules inside the cell and you're heating up the core temperature directly rather than heating up from outside in if you see what i mean press on tend to be cooler on when you go inside and for that reason some of my more um sicker clients find those easier to tolerate the only thing with um infrared is that you just need to be aware of emf right so because uh, the nature of red light and the light source, uh, EMF can be generated. So usually the low EMF saunas have technology that actually mitigates some of that. Thank you so much, Dr. Chen, for coming on the plant pod. This has just been so wonderful. And I've personally learned so much, so I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you so much, Carly. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Plant Pod. Remember to follow Dr. Vivian Chen at Plateful Health on Instagram. She is just such a kind soul and shares a wealth of information on detoxification and what to avoid within your home. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week.